Uh, Good morning, church family. Uh, Please follow along as we read from 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 11, to chapter 3, verse 7. It's on page 1221 in the blue Bibles on your seat, also on the screen behind me. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and to live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Thank you, Aisha. And hello, everyone. My name's Jamie. If we haven't met before, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, It'd be great to keep that passage open in your Bibles as we look at it together. But first, a quote. All acts of the church 
are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world. Uh, That's a quote from a Christian pastor, Wang Yi, writing about how he sees the role of Christians in China. It's a very one Peter view of life. Peter, one of Jesus' first disciples, writes to these believers scattered around the brutal Roman Empire. And he reminds them that because of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead, they have a living hope. There is another world of peace with God, no more pain or sorrow. And that's something that believers so want others around them to know as well. Wang Yi wrote that in an open letter that he asked to be released in the case of his arrest and as in so many parts of the world, to be a public Christian in China brings its share of danger. He's now four years into a nine-year prison sentence for being part of a church that didn't comply with government restrictions. And he wrote that letter to let people know that while he strongly disagreed with the way the government treated Christians, he was willing to submit to their punishment. Because he wanted believers and non-believers alike to know that there is another world, a world to come. Belonging to that world creates its share of tension in this world. And that's true in relatively peaceful Australia too. Uh, Christians are unlikely to be arrested for their faith. Though it's not too hard to imagine a scenario where the Christian view of marriage becomes so offensive to the secular government that it might lead to serious trouble. On a more everyday level, though, we know, don't we, that being a Christian isn't necessarily a ticket to popularity. The way Christians are spoken about in pop culture isn't always super kind, Last week, we looked at the last bit of 1 Peter, and he was painting this beautiful picture of every believer having a role as God's priests in the world, that incredibly dignified life of knowing the king of the universe and going about the royal business of making his goodness known to others. And it would be fair enough if you were thinking... Yeah, but you don't know how hard that is for me in my workplace, in my household. Because what does it look like to be both royal priests and, as today's passage puts it, foreigners and exiles? That's the question Peter tackles today. How can priestly exiles make an impact in a hostile world? Let's dive into the answer from this passage with uh, point one in your outlines, conduct that's hard to argue with. Yes, following Jesus creates its share of tension. Jesus himself was mocked. But here's the thing. The Christian life lived from the heart is beautiful. It's true 
and it works. Have a look with me again from verse 11 of chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter's realistic. He knows that those who don't follow Jesus, like the many who follow the pagan religions of his day, will speak against Christians. They're trying to subvert our nation. They say there's a king other than Caesar. Their views on sex as something designed for marriage between a man and woman are oppressive. But here's the priestly strategy. Live in such a way that shows those accusations to be unfair. Jesus invites us into a battle for integrity, a fight with those old selfish desires to let Jesus be Lord of every part of our lives. Notice in those verses, it's both negative and positive. Uh, We want people to know not only what we're against, but also what we're for. So that ultimately, those who have dissed the gospel will have to admit Jesus is true. That might be reluctantly on the day he returns, bowing the knee in defeat, but hopefully that will happen as people see how the Christian life works, rethink their assumptions and find life in Jesus so that the day he returns might be a day of giving glory to him for his great kindness. So here's the challenge for believers then and now. Create a good dilemma for the people in your life who want to speak ill of Christians and their God by showing the beauty of following Jesus so that people might find themselves thinking, I thought all Christians were hypocrites, but... You seem to be trying to live with integrity and you even ask for forgiveness when you get it wrong. I thought Christians were all bigots, but even though you disagree with how I think about sexuality, you seem to actually care about me as a person. Why? A good dilemma. Now, I can take no credit for this because I've only been here a year and a half But as I've gotten to know this church, it's obvious that we've got a great legacy of creating good dilemmas for those around us, of acting in such a way that our community, believers or not, know that we want the best for them. Um, I've heard stories of great adventures, like the day our church family decided to cook a crazy number of wood fire pizzas. Was anyone around for that event? Yes, sounds very stressful, but very fun. Um, (laughs) Cooking all these pizzas and hand delivering them, no less, to houses around the neighborhood, just to let them know that there are Christians in the area. Apparently, lots of people thought it was a hoax. (laughs) It was just too good to be true. I love that, because no matter what you think about Christians, there's no getting around the fact that these Christians 
care about me. Now, don't wait for the the next official event that we put on for this, but I wonder, what's it going to look like for us as a church to be known for doing good in our community in this next chapter of our life together? It's easy to twist words. Uh, Just look at the comment section on anything in the internet. But a life of integrity is hard to argue with. That's the strategy, says Peter. And in what follows, he applies that strategy to a number of very real and often very difficult situations in both the public sphere and behind closed doors. Let's start with the public sphere, point two, honouring others in public. The thumbnail sketch of a grace-soaked life goes like this, just three words, honour other people. Verse 17 captures it like this, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. Notice there's only one person to be feared in the Christian life, and it's God, which is a good thing because the one you fear is your loving father and not an oppressive overlord. It's because we fear him that we honour others. Here's how verse 13 applies it. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Part of that attractive life of integrity will involve submitting to human authorities. Peter's quite subversive for his day. When the emperor was regarded as a god, he says, yes, honour the emperor, but as a human authority sent from God. So when authorities demand that Christians disobey God... They're going to put Jesus first because he's the one they fear. Yet, God has created us to live in ordered relationships, not anarchy. So, no matter how important I feel, I need to have the humility to say, at this point, it's my job to obey this person for the Lord's sake. If people are going to speak against Christians... Let's not let it be because we are bad citizens. There will be times where we need to stand against government regulations, but when we do, let's do it respectfully, like that pastor in China. But let's recognise too, there are many instances where it honours God just to cheerfully obey. When Jesus paid taxes to Caesar... There was no sense that he was being a a fearful doormat. Instead, he honoured God and shut the mouths of those who accused him of trying to overthrow the government. Let's not miss how radical that kind of willing submission is. Peter was living under Emperor Nero, who is not remembered for his kindness to Christians at all. Yet he knew the best strategy to win the world over to the grace of God was not to riot, nor to retreat into a Christians-only bubble, but to engage with the world peacefully 
giving no one a reason to call us bad citizens. Uh, That's radical today too, I think, um, but not because Australians regard the Prime Minister as a divine being. I think I'm reading that right. (laughs) Rather, Christians have a chance, I think, to stand out from our tall, poppy-cutting culture by actually respecting those God has put in place to lead. That's radical. Peter turns to another example of human authority in verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. It's important to say the Bible never condones slavery. It was the biblical convictions of Christians that led them to oppose slavery in Britain and the States. But Peter is addressing the non-ideal scenario. The reality was that some believers found themselves in this situation with no power to change the system and needed to know how to live in a godly way. It's also worth noting that slavery looked quite different in the ancient world. In Peter's context, it could range from brutal mistreatment to quite dignified work, uh, like being a doctor or a teacher, almost like employment. Either way, a slave knew what it was to be in exile because their experience of life was really determined by whether their master was crooked or kind. Peter says, your dignity is never up for grabs. In either situation, a Christian slave has the opportunity for a beautiful life that makes an impact, and they do that by showing honour to their masters, whether good or bad, by doing a good job, even when they get nothing back. It's a deeply Jesus-like philosophy. And although it's not identical, there are comparisons we can draw to how we view employment today. If you're in a workplace of some kind, part of the way you get to make an impact on this world is by how you conduct yourself in that space, and especially in how you show Christ-like submission to those above you, in not returning unfair treatment with unfair treatment. Now, I've spent much of my working life in churches, so I'm actually really keen to hear from many of you what this is going to look like. Let me share just a couple of observations that I've gleaned from others, though. It seems that one way Christians can make an impact in their workplace for Jesus' glory is being willing to be seen as odd for working in a Christian way, being known as a Christian, and responding kindly to whatever reaction that gets. Being the person who does what they say, not going along with dishonesty, being the person who cares about how others are going. Not all of those things will get you a pat on the back, but they are honouring to your Lord. One of the other themes that I've gleaned is that often Christians have a chance to stand out from the crowd in a culture of complaining, especially about those above. 
It seems like complaining is the easiest way to bond with colleagues. But we want to find other ways to bond because we want to be people who, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to the good, but also to the harsh. Doesn't mean being a a doormat to bad management. Considered feedback is often a kindness to those above, but a non-spiteful, gentle presence stands out. People may talk against Christians in the public sphere, but the beauty of a grace-soaked life speaks volumes. Next, Peter shows us how this strategy plays out behind closed doors. Now, in point three, I'm painfully aware that I'm not going to say everything that needs to be said on this topic. You might like to text the question in uh, for Matt and I to tackle a bit later. But whether you've never been married, previously married, happily married, or struggling in a marriage... The topic of marriage is personal and often painful. Stir in the topic of submission and wow. In our culture, submission is an ugly word. It goes with weakness and inferiority. I hope you'll see today that's not what the Bible teaches. But it is an ugly word partly for good reason Because human beings are very good at abusing power. And when somebody tries to make another person submit, it's horrible. And tragically, people have twisted parts of the Bible like this to justify domineering and even violent behavior in God's name. I hope you'll see today how unfaithful that is to the word here from our kind and loving God. Because once again, God meets us not in the abstract, but in the hard situations of life. In chapter 3, verse 1, Peter addresses Christian wives whose husbands don't believe. For all sorts of reasons, many wives then and now have known the pain of longing for their husband to know Jesus, of trying to convince him through many conversations and, and books, and yet among the joys of marriage, seeing the topic of Jesus become increasingly taboo. I'm aware as I give this sermon now that there are dear sisters in Christ listening in that situation. Can I say how thankful I am that you are here with your church family and others may not fully appreciate the complexities and the courage it takes for you to be here, but God does. And he offers words of hope in verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without a word by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. The way you live at home can have a profound impact as you become a model, pun kind of intended, of the beautiful gospel in action. 
This passage is part of the Bible's wider teaching that God has created men and women equal in dignity and value, yet different. And so in marriages, men and women together display the glory of their creator as the wife thoughtfully follows her husband's lead, a lead that's not domineering but self-sacrificial. But of course, that's never simple because marriages are always between two imperfect, flawed sinners. I think that's right. So does godly submission work and how does it glorify God? First, what it doesn't mean. In the first century world where the husband's religion determined the religion of the household, Peter doesn't say to wives, sorry, but you've got to side with him. He expects the wife to go against his leadership in that way. Because following Jesus comes first. And can you imagine in that culture how much courage and intellectual grit it would have taken a woman to choose a different faith to her husband? The challenge would have been, as today, to do that in a respectful way. Second, we've already seen that every Christian is called to submit. Women and men to governments, bosses, to God. So it's not about some people being better than others or even more naturally submissive. All are made in God's image. And it's about recognising the order that God has created for our relationships and participating in that order, trusting that it's good. Third, notice the language in verse 1 of submitting yourselves. This is submission that the wife does actively. It is not passive or weak. It is deliberate, intelligent action. And fourth, it's deeply Christ-like. Jesus is as much God as his father yet he willingly submitted to the Father. The water walker, Jesus, is no doormat. Yet as he faced the cross, he put himself forward because of his deep commitment to see others saved. And in fact, that gentle and quiet spirit that Peter talks about in verse 4 applies first To Jesus, come to me, he said, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Wives, show their not yet Christian husbands the very character of the mighty Jesus himself as they willingly, gently, intelligently show honour to him. One of my good mates from Bible college uh, is a number of years older than me. He became a Christian after many years of being married to a Christian wife and stubbornly resisting the gospel. Uh, When they first got together, by her own admission, uh, she wasn't a super mature Christian and didn't quite know what she was getting herself into. But years into their marriage, 
she started going to this church that really helped her grow in her faith and her husband noticed and he became more open. He decided to check out this church that, just, that seemed to be doing something good for his wife and that began a long journey towards bowing the knee to Jesus. Let's not underestimate the power of a believing wife's life. And that's true for all wives. Let's be honest, Abraham, who gets a mention, did not always do a great job of leading Sarah. She's the one that gets a mention. Yet she cultivated the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit in the trenches of life. We live in a culture where husbands are often all too keen to handball leadership of the family over to their wives. How can you back your husband in the way you speak about him to others? Where are the areas you can respectfully support him to take responsibility? It's often countercultural, but here is Christ like humility. At this point, I want to be explicit, though, about what this passage is not asking. God is not saying that you have to put up with abuse, physical or verbal. You do not have to put up with being manipulated and controlled. Honouring your husband does not mean allowing his ungodliness to thrive. Putting Jesus first means obeying the governments that he has put in place, which includes doing what we can to prevent and report domestic abuse. And if that's what you're experiencing at the moment, get in touch with Matt, Katie or myself and we will support you. Let's hear the strategy for husbands. Verse 7. Husbands, make sure you lead your wife so that she submits to you. Oh, wait. What does it say? Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs of, with you with, of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. The fact that women have to worry more than men about walking down the street alone is a window into what Peter means when he says that wives are the weaker partner. It's a physical vulnerability that is no reflection of her dignity. In fact, women are co-inheritors with men of the gift of eternal life with exactly the same status before God, equal but different. Therefore, husbands need to go out of their way to show respect to their wives. And this plays out in two ways. First, be considerate. A more word-for-word translation might read, live with her according to knowledge. And here's the question I wrote to myself as I prepared this talk. Jamie, do you think about what's going on for Aisha? Or are you so preoccupied with how you're going and what you want? 
is that a good question to ask? Do I think about what's going on for my wife or am I that preoccupied with myself? When we're tired, when work is crazy, it is tempting to withdraw into yourself, isn't it? But husbands need to be good students of their wives so that they can best delight in and serve her. And I imagine that will be a lifelong pursuit. Second way to show honour, be the one most concerned about your family's spiritual welfare. I say that because Peter's concern is that nothing will hinder the husband's prayers, which assumes that the husband is praying. And why might a husband's prayers be stopped by not relating well with his wife? Well, other parts of the Bible tell us that we cannot offer anything to God, including prayers, unless we are first reconciled with each other. Peter is telling husbands, you need to be the one leading the charge when it comes to reconciliation in your family so that you can keep praying with and for your family. Now that is a hard role. When there's that icy chill after an argument, to be the one to say, I'm sorry. Or to reach out and say, how can we make this right? That is God-honoring leadership. And just to say the flip side, husbands, if you are using your role as leader to dominate your wife, whether it's through outright aggression or just subtly controlling behavior... God will not listen to your prayers. It is a deeply dishonouring way to treat your fellow heir. Please confess to a brother today and start the road to repentance. These aren't the kind of marriages that we will learn by watching TV. But they are the kind of marriages that display God's goodness. Let's celebrate and admire them when we see them happening. It strikes me that the the kind of marriage painted in 1 Peter is very attractive if both parties are trying to put it into practice. A husband and wife both trying to put the other person first. The pain comes when it's not a two-way street when a wife wants to honour her husband, but he leads in a self-centred way, or just constantly retreats to drink beer and play Xbox, which is leading in a self-centred way, actually. Or when a husband wants to know and serve his wife, but she constantly talks him down and dismisses him. But can I say, when it's a one-way street, It honours Jesus when you still put the other person first. Even when your spouse doesn't appreciate it, it's beautiful in God's sight. God shows this hostile world that there is another world through the simple, faithful lives of his people behind closed doors. And can I just add my own word of testimony 
testimony to that. Uh, When I think about how I finally put my trust in Jesus after 16 years of polite stubbornness, I think about my parents' persistent teaching and example. I think of the Christian who followed me up and read the Bible with me and explained God's grace and forgiveness. But I also think of how that Christian man invited me into his home. And I saw him relating with his wife and kids over dinner And I saw them annoying each other, um, but trying to be gracious and forgiving. I saw them praying around the table. I saw in a way that I took for granted in my own home, how the Christian faith looks in real life. They weren't perfect, but they cared about each other. And it was beautiful. If you're here today wondering if the Christian faith is for you, And I encourage you, rather than listening to the popular opinion on Christians, look at the lives of Christians you know, get invited over, and look for clues of God's grace in action. Because point four, believers walk the path of grace. In all the situations we've talked about so far, Christians uh, often find themselves giving of themselves without getting much back for a world that mocks its maker. So I thought it would be helpful to finish just by remembering that God never asks us to do anything without good reason. Back in chapter 2, verse 20, Peter encouraged mistreated slaves, if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. And then verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When the world screamed, crucify, he cried, forgive Now, would you call that weak or passive? We choose the other person-centred road because Jesus walked it first for our sake. So, uh, when you decide to report your taxable income accurately, even though most of your colleagues don't, when you decide not to give full vent to you know, to your frustrations about your husband, to your friends. Entrust yourself to the good judge. God sees. He he won't let it go unnoticed in the end. When you decide to drop the self-justifying and say to your wife, let's make up, it's gorgeous in God's eyes. When you're passed over for that work opportunity again, but one person notices your non-spiteful response. When your workmates have stopped inviting you over to after-work drinks, because they assume a Christian wouldn't be into that, but you decide to invite them over on the weekend anyway, it's beautiful in God's sight. And who knows, someone may see that good deed and move from hostility to openness. 
It's God's kindness to the undeserving in action. And undeserving is who we were. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If you've ever wondered what would motivate people to keep siding with Jesus, even when our pop culture says it's ridiculous, this is why. Because he is kind. He decided to carry our wrongdoings to the cross so we would never have to. He walked into the dirt and grime of this world to lead us to the rolling pastures of that world. Yes, Jesus is our example, but first, he is our saviour. If today has highlighted some shortcomings or regrets for you, and we've all got them, come and be healed by his wounds. This is the grace that needs to drench our lives so that it might seep out of our pores, in our lives, in our homes, in the world. Let's pray. Father, please lead us deeper into the beauty of your grace. May your grace to us in Jesus soak deeply into our lives so that the world may see and ultimately give glory to you. Amen.